0: Hello, friends of the Disney Dish Podcast with Jim Hill. It's me, Lantesta. And even though I'm on a cruise right now, I have a quick announcement for a special free online event I'm doing later this week. The White House Historical Association, yes, that White House, has asked me to host a happy hour discussion with our friend Bethany Bemis from the Smithsonian Museum of American History on the magical history of U.S. President's visits to Disney parks. It's this Thursday, March 2nd at 6 p.m. Eastern, It's free, and it's all online. Visit whitehousehistory.org and get more details. And because it's happy hour, we'll have some friends on to show us how to prepare a proper presidential cocktail. That's this Thursday, March 2nd, 6 p.m. Eastern, whitehousehistory.org. I hope to see you there. Thanks! Welcome back to another edition of the Disney Dish Podcast with Len Testa. It's me, Jim Hill, and I'm flying solo this week on our show for the week of Schmurs Day, February 26, 2023. Not to worry, though. Mr. Testa will be back next week. He and his lovely daughter, Hannah, are out on the high seas enjoying a cruise on... Oh, wait, am I reading this right... The USS Poseidon? <laughs> oh, that ain't good. All right, Len, if you're listening to this message while you're trapped upside down inside of a capsized cruise ship, let me share a little wisdom that the late Ernest Berg9 once laid on me. Avoid the oysters at the raw bar, especially after they've been sitting out in the open for a couple hours. Oh, oh and the metal plating on a ship's hull is always thinnest back toward the keel. Uh, Don't worry, folks. I'm sure Mr. Testa will be fine. I mean, that guy never goes anywhere without his handy acetylene torch. And that's how Len got so good at creme boule. On the show this week, news, listener questions, and in our main segment, we continue the story of the use of Walt's likeness in Disney films and TV shows. But first, before we get started here, I want to take a quick moment to pay tribute to new Disney Dish subscribers, Matthew Ridrock, Master Elwood, and Jackie D, as well as longtime subscribers, Mayo Wildcats 2, John Ryan, and Shauna Roberts. Uh, Maybe you've heard about that new theme park that Universal is planning on building in Frisco, Texas, the one that's supposed to cater to families with young children. These Disney subscribers that I just mentioned have all been tasked with working on the Mouse's response to that project, which I'm told will be the Disney Junior theme park, with its marquee attraction supposedly being the Tron tricycle run. The only downside of this project is, given the speed that Disney builds things these days, the kids who this Disney Junior theme park is supposed to be marketed toward will have graduated from college by the time the place actually opens to the public. Moving on to the news now, and as always, the news portion of today's show is brought to you by Storybook Destinations, trusted travel partner of the Disney Dish. For a worry-free travel experience every time, please book online at storybookdestinations.com. And speaking of booking things reservations for Toy Story Roundup Rodeo Barbecue that highly anticipated all-you-care-to-enjoy. Family-style restaurant, which is due to open at Disney's Hollywood Studio next month on uh, March 23rd, to be exact. Reservations became available earlier this week. We now know the price point for the meals at this place. For lunch and dinner, will be, uh, for adults, it's uh, $45 plus tax and gratuity. And for kids, it's going to be $25 plus tax and gratuity. While the interior of Toy Story Roundup Rodeo Barbecue will continue to tell the stories that guests encounter as they wander around Toy Story Land at Disney's Hollywood Studios and you know the story that you're in Andy's backyard and everything you encounter there is, is built out of outsized playthings that Andy has hauled out of his bedroom, this restaurant will not feature character dining. So don't book reservations for this place and expect to see Woody, Buzz, Jesse, or Bullseye come walking up to your table. Those characters will still be doing meet and greets out in the park at the usual spots, just not inside of Toy Story Roundup Rodeo barbecue. Over at Epcot, final preparations are underway for the 2023 edition of that theme park's International Flower and Garden event. This year, its edition will run from March 1st through July 15th, and the Garden Rocks portion of this annual festival gets underway on Friday, March 3rd, with Steve Aguirre, he's the uh, former lead vocalist of Journey, appearing on stage at the American Gardens Theatre at 5.30, 6.45, and 8 p.m., Steve will be back at the very same venue on Saturday night, March 4th, also performing at five thirty, six forty-five, and 8 p.m. Hopefully, we'll have Chrissy back on the show shortly to give Len and I an update about the very best food that's being offered at all of those outdoor kitchens around World Showcase during Flower and Garden. Jumping now to the West Coast, Disney's Magic Happens Parade, which originally debuted February 28, 2020, only to then suddenly shudder just two weeks later as Disney theme parks around the globe closed due to the pandemic. That was supposed to make its much heralded return to the happiest place on earth on Friday, February 24th, but then the skies opened up. Uh, Three to four inches of rain fell on Southern California, which is why Disneyland decided to postpone Magic Happens to sometime later this weekend. Still waiting to hear if the wet weather has subsided out in California. What I heard early today is the 5 at one point was actually closed due to flooding. So uh can't imagine a lot of folks going to Disneyland. According to an article that ran in the Orange County Register earlier this week, more than half of that parade's performers, who were originally cast to be in the 2020 edition of Magic Happens, They return to resume those very same roles in the 2023 edition of this parade, which, given how the world has changed over the past three years and and how many of us are in very different places in our lives right now, doing radically different things, I I think that's kind of amazing. By the way, if you're headed to Anaheim after the rain's end, please note that Magic Happens isn't the three o'clock parade. That's, by the way, the classic... Dumb question that guest asked at Disneyland. What time is the 3 o'clock parade? This parade actually steps off at Small World Plaza at 3.30 p.m. And then rolls through the park, uh, headed toward Main Street. And then at 6.30 p.m., magic happens, re enters the park in Times Square. Then retraces its route through the hub and back out through Fantasyland. Still kind of a controversial parade among Disney purists. I mean, I mean me personally, I'm always glad to see, a, you know, a float that's themed around Disney's Sword of the zone. That was the very first Disney film I ever saw in a theater. It was released to released to theaters back in December of 63. I was four at the time, which makes it very, very old. My only problem with that moment in Magic Happens is... Merlin is doing dance moves that a 400-year-old wizard couldn't possibly do. But then again, how many 400-year-old wizards do I know? Maybe that's the secret to living that long. Dancing full out on a moving parade floater. I'll have to try that next week on a mountain in Anaheim. Some other California-related news. Earlier this month, the Disneyland Resort put up a casting notice for a new show that was going to be staged in the 2,000-seat Hyperion Theater at Disney California Adventure Park. They were looking for actors, singers, and dancers who could then appear in a new limited-run musical that was being prepped for this theme park. Well, we now know what show is shortly going to be loaded into the Hyperion Theater, and it is Rogers the Musical, the fictitious Broadway show that Clint Barton took his family to see Well, they were visiting New York during the holiday season in the opening episode of that Hawkeye Limited series that ran on Disney Plus last year. Not entirely sure how we're all supposed to feel about this. The the gag in that Hawkeye Limited series was that Rogers the Musical was supposed to be bad. Jeremy Renner actually looked like he was in pain as he sat in the orchestra section watching the Battle for New York number from that show. And I think the Mark Shaman song uh, that that number is performed to is called I Could Do It All Day. By the way, this is Renner looking in severe pain before that snowcat rolled over on him and broke more than 30 bones in his body. Jeremy's home now, and based on everything he's posting on social media, seems to be making an amazing recovery. On the other hand, at last year's D23 Expo, Marvel Studios head Kevin Feige arranged for this very same musical number to be performed live on stage in front of 7,000 people in Hall D23, and they all seem to really love I Could Do It All Day, So, so what do I know? By the way, one thing that is worth considering here, by placing Rogers the Musical in the Hyperion Theater in Hollywoodland at Disney's California Adventure Park, Well, that effectively bumps out the borders of the Avengers' campus a little further. And right across the street from the Hyperion Theater is where DCA is now doing its meet-and-greet with Marvel's latest superhero, which is Moon Girl. So I I guess this is a good thing. FYI, there is no official date yet on Rogers the Musical. All I've been hearing from friends in Disney Live Entertainment is that this limited-run musical will begin performances at DCA's Hyperion Theater later this year. Target is late spring, early summer 2023. Uh, Moving on to listener mail, Craig writes in with a question that keyed off of last week's feature story, which touched on the Imagineers' efforts to replace Disneyland's Great Moments with Mr. Lincoln show with something that might actually attract an audience back into the Main Street Opera House. Uh, Craig... In regards to WDI's great moments with Mr. Lincoln problem said, I always thought that a solution might be to create a tiny but lovely little theater for Lincoln over Pioneer Mercantile, a large store, and thus one that could get smaller to allow for a ramp that would then go up to a new second floor theater. Uh, Lincoln did travel west when young, and So an animatronic show about a younger Lincoln and the older Lincoln in a small jewel theater might work and could free up the space at the front of the park for something more appealing. Muppets, a Mickey and Friends vaudeville-type AA show. Do you know, Jim, if there's ever been such an idea floated? And thanks for your letter, Craig. As for whether the Imagineers ever considered moving the AA figure featured in Great Moments with Mr. Lincoln to another venue at uh, Disneyland Park... The late, great Imagineer Bruce Gordon once told me that this was right before Bruce left WDI in the early 2000s and then was hired by Ron and Diane Disney Miller to go work on the Walt Disney Family Museum project. So, according to Bruce, there was some discussion in the mid-1990s. This was right after the Golden Horseshoe Jamboree Show had stopped giving performances uh, in December of 1994 possibly moving the Lincoln AA figure over to Frontierland and then possibly staging a modified version of Great Wombs with Mr. Lincoln in this venue. The only problem with this proposal is the Golden Horseshoe is a saloon, a place where people can buy sandwiches and drink Pepsi Cola. And while Disney's own research suggested that while Lincoln was originally running for president back in 1860, He undoubtedly gave his stump speech at a lot of places that were just like the Golden Horseshoe. The thinking was that if Disney dared to move a pared-down version of Great Moments to this venue, it would then result in another round of bad publicity for the company, with Orange County conservatives once again bombarding Disney corporate with letters and phone calls claiming that this change in venue was disrespectful to our country's 16th president and So according to Bruce, the Lincoln relocation idea never really got beyond the initial talking phase. Moving on, Mark A. also wrote in to comment on that Kuka Arms-related stories that I shared on an earlier edition of Disney Dish, and Mark wanted to remind us all that, in the original version of Test Track, there were two Kuka arms on display in the post-show of this future world attraction. The they could be seen welding. That, that last little bit of Mark's response is in quotes. The cab of a pickup truck. And I, uh, thanks for sending this info along, Mark. I. I knew that, in addition to the cougar arms that were used to power the sum-of-all-thrills attraction and interventions, likewise the anglerfish scene and the seas with Nemo in friend. right, I, I knew there were other cougar arms on display being used in Future World back in the day. I was just blanking on where exactly in Epcot those cougar arms were. Thanks again for reminding me. We also got this email from Eddie in Delaware, which said, Hey, Jim and Len, I have to start out by saying that I have a long list of podcasts that come out on Mondays, Schmersdays, and I always click on the Disney dish first. Thank you for providing so much entertaining and informative Disney news week after week. I'm also a gigantic Podcast the Ride fan and absolutely go crazy when YouTube podcasts mention each other. Jim, you have to talk with the guys at Podcast the Ride soon. I actually tried to follow through on your suggestion here when I learned that Mr. Testa was going to be away on that cruise with, with Hannah this week. So, Figuring that Mr. Testa does the work of two men, uh, sadly, those two men are Laurel and Hardy, uh, I figured, well, who better to fill in for Len while he was gone than Mike, Jason, and Scott over at Podcast The Ride? So, I went over to their website and used their official contact form to invite these three to come on Disney Dish as guest hosts, and I never heard back from them. I, uh, th- to be fair, though, I did reach out during the week that Super Nintendo World was opening at Universal Studios Hollywood, and that was when the time, judging by social media, the guys were obviously super busy, so eh, who knows, maybe my invite... I accidentally got overlooked, fell through the cracks during a, an especially busy time for the podcast, the ride team. But, but hey, Eddie, I I did try and follow through on your suggestion, and, and maybe we can circle back around on this show idea, the, this crossover thing, at some later date. But, but Mike, Jason, and Scott, that was legitimately me who reached out a, a, a week or so back. Sorry, we weren't able to connect. And since it just wouldn't be an episode of Disney Dish if we didn't share a survey with you guys, Andrew J checked in with a survey from Disneyland Park in California, which sought his opinion on that theme park's new nighttime show, Wondrous Journey. Now, the mouse wanted to know specifically what Andrew's favorite part of Wondrous Journey was. The components uh, were broken out of the show for the survey uh, in this way. Uh, They asked about, for example, how Andrew felt about this new nighttime show original theme song. It's wondrous. The portion of this show, which combined the song Bell from Disney's Beauty and the Beast, Go the Distance from uh, Disney's Hercules, Out There, from the Hunchback of Notre Dame and How Far I'll Go from Moana into One Mega I Want Song. Just a quick aside, how many of you folks out there remember An Amazement, the uh, stage show that was done at Disney, and I want to say 97, 98? They had a, was it uh, same thing? It was Go the Distance and Out There and Pocahontas' song, the Just Around the River Bend. But again, just the notion of a a trio of Disney I Want songs into one very, very powerful song. So anyway, to get back to that survey, they also asked Andrew what he thought of the overall storyline of Wondrous Journeys, the films that were selected to be part of this new, eh, well, all right. It's a projections and fireworks show on the weekends, but only projections on weekday nights, the projections themselves, and then the Wondrous Journey finale. Also, the park wanted to know Andrew's least favorite aspect of Wondrous Journeys. These questions seem to be less about the show itself and more about the conditions that Andrew encountered while he was at Disneyland Park that night. To be specific, they wanted to know about the level of congestion or crowding in his specific viewing area, the sound level and audio quality for Wondrous Journey, Andrew's departure experience, or what it was like to deal with the crowds at Disneyland immediately after Wondrous Journey ended, how long he had to wait for this new nighttime show to start, and the location that Andrew wound up watching Wondrous Journeys from. Andrew also got a question that specifically asked whether Disneyland's newest nighttime show did what it was supposed to. How much do you agree or disagree with the statement? Wonder Journey celebrates 100 years of animation at Walt Disney Studios. Uh, the, his choices were strongly agree, somewhat agree, neither agree or disagree, somewhat disagree or strongly disagree. This was then followed by a question about how Andrew felt about change at Disneyland Park. The, the possible responses to this question were, change is good with few exceptions. Depends on the change, but I like it as long as I still enjoy it. Change is okay, and it doesn't bother me, and then finally, I generally don't like change. Given that I'm the guy who Earl in the show was complaining about how Merlin was dancing in too modern a style for Disney's Magic Happens parades, I'm probably not the guy you want to ask about change at the park, so I'll shut up now. But Thanks to Andrew J. for sharing this survey. Okay, folks, uh, we're going to take a quick commercial break here, but when we return, I'll I'll share a Steve Martin-related story, as well as continuing last week's tale about the the Disney company and and how it used Walt's uh, likeness in films and TV shows. Uh, But we'll be right back. Try it free for 30 days are the most dangerous words, at least as far as your wallet is concerned. I mean, how many of us have done this, Uh, signed up for a 30-day free trial, only to then completely forget about this subscription or that service, And, and then before you know it, you're now paying for a subscription you don't need every single month. However, with Rocket Money, you can change all that with a few quick taps. Rocket Money, formerly known as Truebill, is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps you lower your bills all in one place. Simply find the subscription you don't want and press cancel, and Rocket Money will cancel it for you. No more long hold times with customer service or tedious emailing back and forth. Rocket Money makes canceling subscriptions as easy as the click of a button. Over 3 million people have used Rocket Money, saving the average person up to $720 a year. I have to say that Rocket Money has become an invaluable tool when it comes to managing all of my subscriptions. But that, I mean, when I'm researching a story for Disney Dish and I have to temporarily sign up for some newspaper or magazine's online archives that I then have access to specific info about a particular project, Rocket Money then makes it so easy for me to stay on top of all these subscriptions and then cancel the ones that I don't need anymore. So seriously, folks, stop throwing your money away. Cancel unwanted subscriptions and manage your expenses the easy way by going to rocketmoney.com slash DisneyDish. Again, that's rocketmoney.com slash DisneyDish. One more time for the people in the back, rocketmoney.com slash DisneyDish. We thank them for sponsoring today's show. Before we get to this week's feature story, I just wanted to take a moment to mention a book that I, I've been reading this past week. It's called Number One is Walking, My Life in the Movies and Other Diversions by Steve Martin. It's a, a memoir of sorts that Martin collaborated on with cartoonist Harry Bliss. Uh, on Books put out this 256-page hardcover back in November last year, and it's a warm, funny look back at Martin's early career, how he transitioned from doing stand-up in the 70s to largely working in film. The reason I'm bringing up number one is walking on Disney Dish. Is well, there's a great story in here about how when, when Martin was a young boy working at Disneyland, He encountered a musical group at that park that eventually inspired him to write The Three Amigos, that 1986 film that Steve starred in along with Martin Short and Chevy Chase. Anyway, to hear Steve talk, the inspiration for The Three Amigos came when I was 12 and worked at Disneyland doing cowboy trick roping across from my stand Doing at least a dozen shows a day worked three sensational musicians called the trio, Gonzalez, Gonzalez, Gonzalez. And their repertoire uh, was traditional Mexican songs. And if you want to see this trio in action, seek out the fun in Frontierland episode of Walt Disney's Wonderful World of Color. Uh, that aired on NBC in July of 1962 and, and does feature the Gonzalez trio. By the way, that this uh, group sometimes went as the Gonzalez Duo when they were in the park. That was on those days when Sister Carmelita elected not to go to Disneyland. Anyway, according to the Dave Land website, the trio Gonzalez, Gonzalez, and Gallas sang many popular Latino songs, among them Guadalajara and El Rancho Grande. They also performed La Bamba before it was a hit by Richie Valens, and and. In another interview, Steve Martin uh, recalled, you know, again, he's working at at Disneyland uh, directly across from these guys. And it's like, wow, that song they're doing could be a hit. And then it was. So the music of the Gonzalez Trio lived on in Steve Martin's head. But what also spurred the creation of the Three Amigos is uh, years later in Santa Barbara, California. I was having lunch at the Paradise Cafe. There was a mural on the wall in that restaurant that depicted a vaquero rearing back on a horse and waving his hat. Its joyful mood impressed as something that could be the heart of a movie. Literally, it's, it's this trio singing at Disneyland, and this mural in, in Santa Barbara that eventually led to The Three Amigos. And Number One is Walking is full of these these sort of offhand, self-evasing tales uh, from Martin's 40-plus years of working in film. And it, it's a great, great read. And with the book, there's a, a selection of genuinely funny cartoons that Martin and Harry Bliss collaborated on. So you get the chance. Check it out. Okay, picking up where we left off with last week's tale of of Walt's likeness in the parks, and it's been used in films and TV shows at Walt Disney Studios. When we left off last week, we'd reached the part of the story where Walt's widow Lillian Disney Truins was so mad at Disney's board of directors for forcing her son-in-law to resign as president of Walt Disney Productions that she just showed up unexpected one day down at Disneyland in uh, late September of 1984. Walt's widow steps out of a limo. She walks up to the entrance of the park and says, I'm here for my stuff. She then went upstairs. Uh, in the firehouse and cleared all of the Disney family stuff out of their apartment that overlooked Main Street. This is why a year or so back, when when Disney fans got so upset that the lamp in the window of Walt's apartment suddenly changed, I, I just had to laugh. I mean... Lillian took the real one with her nearly 40 years ago, so this was never a case of, oh my God, Walt's lamp has been replaced. I mean, the real one had had been out of the park since the fall of 84. Anyway, we really need to get back to the story of Walt's likeness now. Uh, more importantly, how ferociously the Disney family had been when it came to protecting how, how Walt was portrayed in films and TV shows. How many of you have seen Walt Disney One Man's Dream? This is a tour-along special that aired on NBC back in December of 1981, hosted by Michael Landon. This program was admittedly cheesy, but is still must-see viewing for any theme park enthusiast, if only for the sequence where Dick Van Dyke sings and dances his way through Wed's Hunger facility. As part of this number, you can see all of these things that are being prepped to be shipped over to Tokyo Disneyland. Um, We're talking the animatronic elephants for that theme park's Jungle Cruise ride, the ghostly dancers that you'd see in the Grand Hall at Tokyo Disneyland's Haunted Mansion, even the dinosaurs for Tokyo Disneyland's version of Primeval World. There's also all of this amazing footage that's being shot right on site in the fall of 1981 at the still very much under construction Epcot Center. While the Disney family, which even then supported the idea that One Man's Dream, the special on CBS, was a great way to raise awareness of Epcot Center less than a year before the, the Disney World Second Gate opened, they were still very wary when it came to the idea of any actor playing the adult Walt Disney on screen, which is why, as a compromise for this TV special, Walt was only shown as a young boy. In fact, 13-year-old Christian Hoff was hired for this role. By the way, if you're a Broadway theater fan, you may have seen Mr. Hoff on stage. He was actually a member of the original cast of Jersey Boys. Later in the show, when it became time for the adult Walt to enter the story and and do things like put Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs in production or begin construction on Disneyland, the creative team behind Walt Disney One Man's Dream opted to go this very interesting route. What they decided to do was, from this point forward, the camera in this TV special would become Walt. And what they then did is writer-director Carl Reiner then played every man who ever said no to Walt. So, I mean, for example, there's this lovely scene where Carl plays the banker who turns down Walt when he's looking for money to to make Fantasia. After uh, Walt Disney One Man's Dream, it would be another 11 years before we saw Walt portrayed on film again. And This time, it was for a five-minute-long live-action thing that that mixed in some animation that was shot for Disney MGM uh, to entertain folks who were waiting in line for this theme park backstage tour. This project, which you can find under two different names. One of them is Mickey's Big Break, and the other one is Mickey's Audition, was directed by Rob Minkoff, the co-director of The Lion King. And after a, a wraparound for this film that's supposed to be shot in the modern day in Mickey's office on the Disney lawn. Its opening scene is is actually shot on Hollywood Boulevard at at MGM. And this short comic film is really kind of a who's who of, of comedy and television in the 1990s. I mean, for example... Mickey's secretary at Disney Studios is played by Angela Lansbury. And the very first person that Mickey encounters when he arrives in Hollywood back in the 1920s is Carol Kane. Maybe you know her as Valerie, Miracle Max's wife, the witch from The Princess Bride. Uh, Mel Brooks plays the director who decides to hire Mickey. Uh, for his screen test. In fact, what's kind of interesting, if you're paying attention to what's going on in the background, they actually built a version of the Steamboat from Steamboat Willie, and you can also see some props that were done for Two-Gun Mickey. Ed Bagley Jr. and Marklin Baker play Mel's Flunky's Yes Men at the studio. Jonathan Winters is the cameraman on Mickey's uh, screen test. Dom DeLuise is the guy behind the boom mic. And then... Playing Walt Disney is Walt's nephew, Roy O. Disney's son, Roy E. Disney. And this monumental moment in movie history when Walt and Mickey first meet, I won't lie, it's staged kind of brilliantly. Roy E. is lit from behind, so you only just get this perception of how much Walt's nephew really does look like the company's co-founder. And when Mickey and Walt first go to shake hands, thus spike Zarathustra. That uh, that music cue from 2001: A Space Odyssey that plays in the background. Downside is this was a very short-lived thing in the parks. It's viewable basically these days over uh, only on YouTube. Now, mind you, the, the Disney family was okay with Roy E. playing Walt in. Mickey's big break and Mickey's audition, because it was largely kept in the family, and, and and again, you know, Roy E had a very strong likeness to Walt. But that said, as the 1990s continued, the Disney family found itself in more of a position of having to defend Walt. Some of this came on the heels of Mark Elliott's Disney Hollywood's Dark Prince, an incredibly poorly research bio of Walt, uh, published back in 1994, that reportedly made Diane Disney Miller furious for for suggesting things like that Walt used to cat around in the 1940s with various starlets. And then in October of 1995 came A Dream is a Wish Your Heart Makes, the Annette Funicello story. This project, the Disney family, because Annette herself was involved in the production of this TV movie for CBS, and, and because this TV movie was going to be based on Annette's best-selling memoir, which was a known quantity for, to the Disney family, they agreed to let the adult Walt be portrayed by an actor for the very first time. and. Len Carreau, uh who's probably best known these days for, for playing the retired police commissioner Henry Regan in Blue Bloods. But uh, back in the mid-90s, Len was probably best known for originating the title role in Stephen Sondheim's Sweeney Todd, The Demon Barber of Fleet Street. He played the title role in the original Broadway production. It was Tony Award winner. Len played Walt. And Carew Did an okay job as Walt. I mean, uh, that said, uh, a dream is a wish your heart makes. The Annette Funicello story is is to this day kind of infamous uh, with Disney fans for that scene in this TV movie, which is supposed to be the last time that Annette meets Walt in person. She goes to his office and he directs her attention to, hey, take a look at this model for Epcot. And. But here's the thing, it's not Epcot the city, it's literally the model for Epcot Spaceship Earth, which kind of infuriated Disney fans, because of course, Walt had nothing to do with the design of Spaceship Earth, but it's worth noting that on the heels of Mark Elliott's uh, Walt Disney, Hollywood Stark Prince, and then again, this Annette Funicello TV movie bio getting some pretty significant things wrong about Walt, are around this same time Diane Disney Miller begins working on the Walt Disney Family Museum project. Diane was uh, reportedly worried that the world was beginning to to view her dad more as a corporate symbol than as a real man. Someone more along the lines of Chef Boyardee or Betty Crocker rather than, say, uh, a Thomas Edison or Henry Ford. And with this in mind, the Disney family began to really restrict how Walt could be portrayed on film or on TV or or even in plays at this time. they were they became very, very protective of Walt for the next decade, saying no to a lot of things. It was only when saving Mr. Banks, which had this wonderful script by Kelly Marcel, also the promise that Academy Award winner Tom Hanks would play Walt in this film that Diane finally gave her blessing to this project. And, When he was prepping for this role, Tom Hanks made several trips to the Walt Disney Family Museum and talked with many of Walt's former employees. He also sat down with Diane Disney Miller herself because Tom really wanted to do right by both Walt and Diane. Diane was so looking forward to the release of Saving Mr. Banks in December of 2013, but she never got to see the finished film, Ms. Disney Miller died one month prior to the release of the Jean Lee Hancock movie as a result of, of medical complications that came on the heels of a, a really bad fall. Uh, she was, it was 79 at the time. Interestingly enough, though, the, the studio dedicated Saving Mr. Banks to, to Diane Disney Miller. To this day, Saving Mr. Banks provide the template for a film that could take Walt Disney seriously, treat him as a, a real person, or a man, uh, rather than some corporate symbol. And just so you know, there's something of a prequel in the works to that John Lee Hancock film over at Disney Plus. Only this movie won't show the Walt Disney of the 1960s, as a, a man who is at the height of his creative powers but rather the Walt of the late 40s, early 50s, who was, was willing to risk it all, I mean, his studio, his family fortune, on building this crazy idea, this, this family fun park out in an, uh, Walnut and Orange Grove in Anaheim, California. This yet-to-be-titled film was initially announced back in October of 2021, And David Gordon Green, who directed Halloween Kills, is slated to helm this project. And Evan Spiliotopoulos, whose credits include Disney's Beauty and the Beast and Snow White and the Huntsman, is writing the screenplay. So that's the story of how Walt was portrayed to date in films and TV shows. So how about this? Why don't we wait till Mr. Testa gets back from his cruise to talk about how Walt's likeness was then used in the parks? Uh, The final part of this three-part series will take us through the original part news statue at Disneyland Park and why that got placed in the hub all the way through to the Dreamer's Point statue that's being readied for world celebration at Epcot. As I understand it, That portion of this feature-world redo will finally come online next year, sometime before the summer of 2014. That's going to do it for today's show. You can help support this podcast and Jim Hill Media by subscribing to DisneyDish.Bandcamp.com, where you'll find exclusive shows never before heard on iTunes. On next week's show... Len returns and hopefully we'll have more news about how the 2023 edition of Epcot's International Flower and Garden Festival stacks up in comparison to previous year's events. You can find more of Mr. Testa over at Turing Plans and more of me over at jimhillmedia.com. We're produced fabulously by Aaron Adams, who'll be spending this coming weekend super gluing googly eyes to bivalves as he competes in the Oyster Decorating Competition at the 44th Annual Fulton Oyster Fest, which is being held March 2nd through the 5th down on the festival grounds at Fulton Beach Park, which is located on North Casterline Drive in beautiful Fulton, Texas. While Aaron's doing that, please go on to iTunes and rate our show and tell us what you'd like to hear next. For Len, this is Jim, and we'll see you on the next show.